George Bush calling the president. Oh, um, yes, and then there was also Don Hughes on the phone. I beg your pardon? There was a Don Hughes on the phone from Thailand via satellite, and George Bush is on the phone. Hello? George, are you? I'm fine, and I, I've heard that speech with great pride. I tried to call in there, but the switchboard's been lit up, I guess. I don't let anybody through, but... They well, I couldn't even get the operator there, but I... I we've been, I've been on the phone, George, all night. I'll bet you have, but we watched it. We digested, attended a Republican leadership conference here, and I... I really, I really was proud of you, and my golly, I know it was tough, and I, I just wanted to tell you that, because it, uh, to me, it came through clearly and forcefully, and, and it conveyed the deep depth of feeling that I know you must have had agonizing over John and Bob and stuff, and I just wanted to tell you that before I went to sleep. Well, good to you, George. Because, uh, it, it, uh, but now, George, the main thing is, you had nothing to do with this goddamn thing. No. We're going to go on. Is the May 8th dinner going on? Well, it's going, yeah, and it's, 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 it's. No, this may help us. This may help us. Well, and, and if it does, I'll come by and they all got to cheer. You understand? There's no problem on that. They will. The, the people in the political thing have wanted something that they really are with you. And I know, I feel it strongly tonight, and I've been in many states in the last 10 days, South Carolina, Pennsylvania, Texas, and No, but it's, it's, and it's, and when you tell them this, and, and, and get it in focus, is exactly... And I appreciate what you suggest, you do anything, and I may call on you, but... Well... But I don't, I'm not sure, but what you're doing, the most important thing you can do, but in any event, you and I will be going to be very close, you understand that. Well, best of luck, and holler on anything, tough ones, anything, because... I know that, George. Great, and I don't. I sit here. Bob, Barbara and I were sitting listening to these guys. Well, give Barbara my best. The, what? The, the commentators oh. giving it out. Well, Rowan and there's an arrogant bastards that don't really, you know, and they don't get the. The thing that burns me up is the feeling that you had and that came through. They don't. There's a little credit for that, but I think the people well, let, the folks may understand it. They you understand see, it. The folks didn't understand the uh, checker speech, but the yeah. people did. This, uh, people I mean, the, the commentators didn't, yes. and the commentators didn't understand Cambodia, but the people did, and the commentators didn't understand May 8th, but the people did. Well, uh -huh. the hell with the commentators. Hell with them. This is going to come through good, and and I just, okay, boy. A lot of people are rooting for it. All right, boy. Okay, sir. I'm going to do the call. Not at all. I'm just doing my best to Barbara. I will, sir. Goodbye. Okay. Hello, everybody. Welcome back. It's Chapo. It's me, Matt, and Felix coming at you today with the long-anticipated part two of our epic series on the life and times of George H.W. Bush, the man known affectionately as Poppy. This is Poppy Part Two, and if you if you go back and listen to Poppy Part One, episode four hundred and seventy-one. Pause tape now to uh, return to our Patreon archives to listen to Part One. Part One, we essentially narrated. George H.W. Bush's life from being a young, young Yaley, a young Ivy Leaguer and Skull and Bones guy to his involvement in the Navy and his rise to power in politics, culminating with his strange appearance in Dallas on November 22nd, 1963, and his um, rather odd 
uh, public statements that he did, didn't know where he was on probably the single most remembered day in American history. To, uh, in order to basically uh, relate the big events of the uh, life and times of George H.W. Bush, we now must consider another rather large figure in American history. And I'm talking, of course, about Richard Milhouse Nixon. And who was I, also uh, in Dallas uh, uh, on I will get November twenty second? I will get to that. It's a very another very weird uh, conf, conf, confluence of people and events in Dallas on November twenty second, nineteen sixty three. But basically, like where we where we last left off was George W. Bush, the events leading up to the assassination of JFK, um, all of the strange connections between George H. W. Bush, the Bush family, and many of the peripheral figures in the Kennedy assassination, and to Lee Harvey Oswald himself. Um, I'd like to spend most of this episode talking about Watergate, which of that era was probably second only to the Kennedy assassination as like the single biggest news story, news event in like the American presidency and like American politics and culture of that like 60s to 70s period. I mean, it still figures so largely in the American consciousness and particularly in our conception of the role of the media and our sort of valorization of, of journalists and, you know, basically... It is a story that is just a shorthand for holding the powerful to account. Now, what we are going to suggest here in this episode is a a contrarian reading of Watergate that makes a different case. And I'm not saying you have to um, accept it wholeheartedly. I mean, this is this is this there are competing narratives out there. But with once again indebted to uh, Russ Baker and his book Family of Secrets, I think it's worth delving into uh, a case he advances as it regards the life of George H.W. Bush, his connection to Watergate, and basically what it really meant and what was really going on with Watergate and Nixon's resignation. So, but before we get there, I'd like to begin with, uh, in the year 1969, Uh, Richard Nixon was the newly elected president of the United States, and one of the first things he did in office was arrange a date for his daughter, Trisra, with none other than George W. Bush. He even uh, basically used a White House jet on taxpayer dime to pick up George W. Bush from Moody Air Force Base in Georgia and fly him back to D.C. for an evening of courtship and fun with his daughter, Trisha. So, I mean, it points to something going on here, which is basically Nixon. This basically relates to Nixon's attempts to smooth things over with the Bush family. And this is because six months earlier, when Nixon was the GOP presidential candidate, he had seriously considered Poppy H.W. Bush as a running mate and was uh, under a great deal of pressure to name H.W. Bush, who was considered a sort of a young, exciting uh, star in the Republican Party as his running mate. And by bucking the sort of uh, a lot of the people in his ear and a lot of his very powerful backers, including Prescott Bush, H.W. Bush's father, he chose Spiro Agnew. And there, there is a in most biographies of Nixon, the name, the Bush family, like H.W. Bush or his family, are relatively absent from most major documentaries. But the thing is, these two political families are very... We're not close to each other personally, but we're deeply related in just sort of um, this mutually assured circle of of supporting and ensuring one and the other's rise to power. Now, 
HW went from relative obscurity. I mean, you'll remember back in part one, basically he was uh, working for the Texas Republican Party to support uh, uh, Republican candidates in Texas in the midterm elections of 1964. And like that was his purported reason for being in Texas at the time of the assassination. But it was with largely Nixon's help that HW went from relative obscurity to in a not long, not a very long period of time, the heights of power in the Republican Party. Uh, This is, of course, despite the facts that we have taped conversations between Nixon and Kissinger and others where they both say they regard HW as a lightweight, quote, weak and unqualified for each of the positions that he was eventually given by the Nixon administration. And this is a recurring theme with HW. This is HW, similar to his son and similar to many people after, his image of being weak, a nerd, a pushover, that's exactly what he wanted you to see him as. If you remember that uh, 60 Minutes report that we referenced, you can still find on YouTube where they ask him, are you too nice to be president? <laughs> Which is an amazing question to ask him. Uh, yeah, this is what he wanted. Because if you don't see him as a pushover and lightweight, you see him for what he actually is, which is like, yeah, the, f- the fucking Goku of the NWO. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like I said, like, um, just like uh, the relationship between the Bush and the Nixon family has like eluded most biographies of Nixon. And if you search the indexes in most of the major works, they only turn up a few references to the Bush family or HW personally. But if it were not for Nixon, both George H.W. Bush and certainly George W. Bush after them would probably never have become president. So, like, so why is that? And the thing is, the, the reason why, despite the fact that, like, they could not have been more different as people and were not socially clo- or personally close at all, Nixon owed a great deal of his political career to Prescott Bush. And the thing is, like, here's it gets into this thing about Richard Nixon's, like, psychology and character and personal history. So to read, I'm just going to quote here from Baker. Um, like basically Nixon's story as a character and a political figure is defined in large part by his feelings of paranoia and resentment towards the Eastern establishment, as, as he called them, who he sold his soul to for power. And But the thing is, he had a lot of good reasons to be paranoid. And I'm going to quote from Baker here. Generally, Richard Nixon was known to be a wary and a suspicious man. It is commonly assumed that he was paranoid, but Nixon had good reasons to feel apprehensive. One was probably the worry that someone would unearth the extent to which this self-styled outsider from Whittier, California, had sold his soul to the same Eastern establishment that he publicly and even privately reviled. At the same time, he knew that those elites felt the same about him. They tolerated him as long as he was useful, which he was until he got to the top. Then trouble started. So going back to 1966, uh, George H.W. Bush had an unsuccessful run for the Senate. Then, of course, he ultimately won election to the 7th Congressional District of Texas and arrived in D.C., Um, along with the Nixon administration. But he had lost that Senate run, so he was a freshman congressman from Texas and then immediately was given a seat on the House Ways and Means Committee, which was highly irregular for a freshman congressman. It hadn't happened since 1904. And, well, okay, why? The House Ways and Means Committee was the one of the most important committees in Congress. And for for these people in the Bush family, it was important because House Ways and Means was the gatekeeper or there was a control of something called the oil depletion allowance, 
which was of basically the highest importance to this new class of sort of southwestern and Texas oil men and all the new wealth that they and the Bushes represented. And keeping that allowance, which was essentially a huge tax giveaway to the oil industry, was the single most important thing to them. So Poppy Bush, H.W., arrives in Washington as basically... The, the oil, the oil men, the new wealth that that like the, the sort of the Texas and Southwestern oil boom represented. And he was a conduit for their money, which would help elect Nixon, would help Nixon win the nomination in 1968. But he was the, he's standing at the nexus between uh, these Texas oil men, the Eastern establishment and bankers, which, of course, like his family comes from. And, of course, the intelligence community. So in return for that, Texas and like sort of Texans and Bush friends dominated the Nixon presidential campaign. In exchange for fundraising, Poppy, the Poppy Bush recruited all of his former friends and partner, including Zapata Petroleum guys, to become basically the, the, all of the campaign chairman, like the financial chairman of the Nixon campaign. So like the whole, like all, all of these moving, all these parts were just sort of shuffled in there from Bush and his connections to the Nixon campaign to ensure their money, support, et cetera, et cetera. And, the, and like I said, this, this includes a lot of the same people or people who worked for people we talked in episode one as they relate to Zapata Petroleum and other various cutouts and outfits like that. Yeah, uh, George H.W. Was the, was the Eastern point man in uh, the process of bringing that Western oil money into power, uh, bringing them into the tent so that they were no longer uh, like insurgents because that was really what the Goldwater campaign had been, had been this this Western uh, conservative uh, uh, revolt, basically, against the Eastern uh, Republican Party. And guys like Bush, more than anybody, uh, were there to, to manage their entry into power uh, on the terms of uh, Eastern money, which, of course, is what he always represented first and foremost. Yeah, the story of the latter half of the 20th century, especially on the side of uh, American empire and sides aligned with American uh, Empire uh, is being a middleman. Mm. If you remember uh, Layer Cake. One more thing, young man. Always remember the art of good business is being a good middleman. Bye bye. All all great business is being a good middleman. And the guys who sort of cemented their place in the latter half of imperial history in the second half of the 20th century were the great middlemen. George H.W. Bush forget anything else that was his talent he was a connector piece and he was the best connector piece there could be yeah. but his mere image exists in a lot of other imperial periphery i mean prince turkey al-faisal uh the key piece in operation cyclone and the creation of the taliban and by extension al-qaeda he was the he was the connecting piece between the cia saudi arabia pakistan's isi and then the nascent taliban there are guys, that's if you wanted to establish a political dynasty from about 1970 on, that's what you were, because this part of the Cold War and this part of Imperial Arc was all about consolidation. Yeah, and you made your bones by finding out where uh, the points had to be soldered together, and being the one who the necessary person uh, in those negotiations. Mm -hmm. And that's exactly who George H. W. Bush was. Hold on one second. Get down. 
dumb piece of shit. All right. So yeah, like as you were saying, like George W. George H. W. Bush, Poppy was like the perfect middleman for like the, all these various nexuses of power, which were coalescing to put Richard Nixon into the White House. And as soon as he got the nomination, both Poppy and his father Prescott Bush, uh, they they worked and lobbied furiously for uh, to the Republican Party and to the Nixon campaign, urging him to choose H. W. as his running mate. And of course, these were backed by uh, the, the na- some of the names um, urging Nixon to give uh, him this VP spot were, you know, the type of people who would give Nixon send a chill up his spine. You're talking about the CEOs of Chase Manhattan Bank, Tiffany and Company, J.P. Stevens and Company, and of course, the executives at Pennzoil and Brown Brothers Harriman. All were lobbying on H.W.'s behalf to become uh, to get the VP nod. Um, so despite the fact that H.W. was was being groomed for this this spot, and like the, the, this was clearly the reason that they were like all these these people were supporting Nixon. The closer he got to the promised land of finally being president, which is something Nixon had been basically been working for half his life to achieve, um, the closer he got to that, the more independence that he he asserted, and he did that by surprising everyone and choosing like the the governor of Maryland, Spiro Agnew, as his running mate. And with Agnew, he, he had, it was like the perfect guy for Nixon because Agnew was a, a brawler and a guy who could be an attack dog on the campaign trail and just sort of a political enforcer for him that would grant Nixon the, the freedom and distance to appear statesmanlike. Because, you know, Nixon began his career as precisely that kind of like blood-soaked bulldog, like political hatchet man. And that, but even though he'd always sort of styled himself or viewed himself as this kind of grand statesman-like diplomatic figure. So Agnew gave him the freedom to pretend to be this sort of above it all, like higher, above politics and, and someone who is dedicated to like the craft of state and not political attacks. But also importantly, Agnew did not have the same network of astonishing wealth and power behind him. And with that, didn't come any risk of, of Agnew potentially outshining him or replacing him or undermining him as VP. So, and then after Agnew was tapped by Nixon, Prescott Bush was furious. And uh, Baker quotes him writing in a letter to his friend, Tom Dewey. Tom Dewey. He writes here, I fear that Nixon has made a serious error here. He had, a, he had a chance to do something smart, to give the ticket a lift, and he cast it aside. And also, he, he was also seething over the fact that, basically, he, hasn't, he, he, he felt betrayed by Nixon in a way that he, by, by not choosing his son, as he did by John F. Kennedy, firing his close friend, Alan Dulles, as head of the CIA. Keep that in mind. Think how that ended up for Kennedy, <laughs> considering where Nixon and his presidency would eventually, the problems they would run into. So... Let's go back in time now to like the beginning of Richard Nixon's political career. And in, in, in Richard Nixon's telling of events, he entered politics in 1945 when an old family friend who was a banker from California, a guy named Herman Perry, uh, asked a, you know, he was just out of the Navy. He was a young Navy vet. He asked him to fly to Los Angeles and meet with a group of businessmen who were trying to recruit someone to run against a Democrat named Jerry Voorhees, who they considered to be too, li- too liberal and too close to unions. So he was, he was like, you know, he, he was recruited by them to stand and run for Congress. And now, in Nixon's telling, the men who recruited him to do this, the people present at that meeting, were basically chamber of commerce types. They were small business owners, auto dealers, guys who ran furniture stores, shit like that. In reality... These people were fronts for far, far bigger and more powerful people, including among the biggest backers and people 
you know, who coordinated this meeting were the Chandler family, who were like a family of California oligarchs who owned the Los Angeles Times and whose money came from railroads. Uh, the Chandlers got a lot of money from railroads because they used their rail to ship oil. Who were they in business with in this regard? Yes, Dresser Industries, who you might remember from part one. So also present at the meeting to recruit Nixon was a man named Willard Larson, who was a representative of Standard Oil. Now, here I'd like to reference a, a fictional account of Nixon's presidency, and that is, of course, Robert Altman's Secret Honor. And Secret Honor oh, is like yes. in Philip, Philip Baker Hall. It's like a one-man show. That's just it's a, it's a filmed stage uh, stage play. That's a one-man show that is all Philip Baker Hall as Nixon uh, recording himself on like his like last night in the White House, like relating the story of his whole life. And in that movie, he talks about this this meeting, and he refers to them as the Gang of One Hundred. And throughout the show, like throughout throughout the movie Secret Honor, it becomes more and more clear that like these are the people that Nixon lived his life in fear of and why he ultimately resigned was his fear of these this same cabal of oil executives, bankers and like oligarch families starting basically a civil war or doing a military coup in America to replace not to just replace him but to like basically end democracy in America. And that it like he, and I mean, this is a fictional account. So like it's, it's offering a fictional explanation for the actions of Nixon, but it's one that's, that's largely excluded from our sort of pop cultural understanding of Watergate. This whole, like the fact that he, he knew how indebted he was to these powerful men who picked an outsider like him, who was, you know, not of the elite. He was from Whittier, California. He was kind of like a, almost a farm boy at that time. And he was put in this position to undermine or just to, to get out of there, this guy Voorhees, who, while no radical, was certainly a very prominent critic of monopolist power and someone who enforced and passed legislation, antitrust legislation, to attack things like, for instance, individuals who served on multiple boards of oil companies at the same time in what was clearly... And like an act of monopolist collusion on their on on the behalf of like not just one oil company but the oil industry like the, these are who these people are they're all in the same club and they're all on the boards of all of these fucking oil companies so I mean like these are the people backing Nixon and like that that fear that paranoia about these people I would recommend checking out Robert Altman's Secret Honor if you'd like anything further on that Matt do you remember that part of Secret Honor where he talks about the Gang of One Hundred Oh yeah 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 the that they they owned him basically, and that and you know the the movie is it does it's an unreliable narrator honestly, but obviously, but it kind of pitches that in Nix's mind at least, and the reason it's called Secret Honor is that he was willing to take the public soiling of uh, resignation in order to save American democracy. Now, in 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 Voorhees's memoir about his time as a congressman, he was aware, he was very well aware of this meeting. And he talks about how um, he refers to uh, the representative of a New York financial house uh, traveled to California to attend this meeting. Now, in the same month, Prescott Bush was also in California because Dresser Industries was attempting to buy an oil pump manufacturer located in Whittier, California, Nixon's hometown. So if you believe it was Prescott, who was one of that important, the most important man in that room and a, a representative of that New York financial house in the man in the room who launched Nixon's career, his sense of indebtedness to these, these fucking creeps, these, like, these, these bankers and tycoons who represented everything he personally 
hated about the Eastern elite and the establishment begins to make more sense. This feeling of, yeah, like I said, the fact that they owned him and that one of the guys in that room recruiting him for this position very well, very well may have been Prescott Bush. So in his congressional race against Voorhees, Nixon, you know, he, he debuted all of the skills that he would make his name for, that he made his name for. I'm talking about like he red baited this guy hard and rode a wave of anti-communist fervor um, into Congress. And he served two terms in the House and then moved up steadily and became a senator from California in 1952. And no, but no, became a senator from California. And then by 1952, he was po- he was being positioned and uh, on a reluctant Eisenhower as a running mate by the very same people in New York. So and then of course, he does become Eisenhower's running mate. And the thing is, I'm, I'm going to quote from Baker here, it says here, the further Nixon rose, the more he resented the arrogance of his eastern elite handlers. Though he would continue to serve them diligently throughout his career, his anger festered, perhaps over frustration with the extent to which he was beholden. Now, during Eisenhower's presidency, the Texas oil industry really took off. And at that time, H.W. Bush, as we talked about in part one, was part of this crop of Ivy Leaguers who turned like Midland, Texas into a new financial capital. And crucial to their business was, as I mentioned, this oil depletion allowance, which greatly reduced taxes on the income derived from petroleum production. And like this gets into like the Bushes back Nixon, like the Bush family back Nixon against Kennedy in 1960. But at that moment, like they, they had their finger to the air and could sense the winds were changing direction in the Republican Party. And then it didn't take long until 1964 in which they backed Goldwater over Nelson Rockefeller, despite their long-time like, ties socially and otherwise to the Rockefeller family. And they, 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 uh, they sensed that this new power was coalescing, not around sort of these Eastern liberal sort of free-trading business Republicans, but a new power based on the ultra-conservative politics of the Southwest that were backed by new oil money and new wealth. And these are people, this, this is when yeah, Goldwater, like movement conservatism began to become a thing. And these people were ultra conservative in their beliefs, but also stridently anti-communist. And it was people like Rockefeller and these business Republicans who basically thought free trade was good. And they, they, they were in favor of it because, you know, like they, they knew the money it represented, but also they were what that basically meant was the beginning of thawing out tensions with the Soviet Union and China to sort of bring them into like a, a global free trade paradigm. And that the strident anti-communists and these oil these oil guys that like were you know the Bush family were beginning to uh, sort of place their chips with um, were hysterically anti-communist and insanely against not just any kind of rapprochement with the Soviet Union or in China, but basically wanted to start World War III with them. And uh, when Bush ran unsuccessfully for the Senate in '66, he ran as a Goldwaterite. He ran to the hard right. Uh, he's got a reputation as a uh, he. He got a reputation later as as like the more moderate, as the face of the more moderate side of the party, and that's one of the reasons he was chosen to be Reagan's running mate. But that was only after eating shit uh, by trying to uh, be a red meat uh, reactionary. Because in part, I guess you just that's the one problem with being poppy is that you can't pull that one off. No one's going to buy it. Yeah. So, how did Nixon look at a guy like H.W. And like the answer is, he viewed H.W. Bush, Poppy, as basically someone exactly like JFK. He was a handsome young Ivy League guy who never had to worry about money, and Nixon despised him for it. 
So, of course, he resented like all of the, the, the pressure he was under to name him as his running mate. And once he locked up the nomination, of course, then that's when he bucked Prescott and like, you know, the gang of 100 by naming Agnew as his guy. But in exchange for that, he knew he had to soothe these people. Um, so he had to make amends with that gang. So in exchange for not choosing H.W. Bush, he ended up staffing his cabinet with their creatures. And I'm talking like, I'm going down a list of like former Zapata oil member, uh, so former Zapata petroleum guys, uh, lawyers from Baker Botts, all Bush campaign guys, all close friends of Poppy, the Bush family. And wouldn't you know it, a lot of these guys, and like there are too many to name, and I can't get into the details around all of them, but a lot of these same people would play covert to outright roles in the events that led to the downfall and resignation of Richard Nixon. One of the only guys in Nixon's White House who was not in this crew was Henry Kissinger, of course. And Kissinger was a longtime protege of Nelson of the Rockefellers and was known as an internationalist. Um, he was suspect on both the left and right, but movement conservatives basically hated that the Rockefellers had this global design that included accommodation rather than confrontation with uh, the Russians and the Chinese. And Nixon, as president, was always caught at the intersection of this power struggle within the right wing about vis-a-vis -vis like the, the Cold War, China, free trade, and things like that. And it, of course, he like Nixon as a, as, a, as a person was definitely more at ease with the kind of like the, the hawks and the warriors and like the, the right wingers. But he worked diligently to please both sides as much as he could. But the crucial thing that he did early on in his presidency is that he basically he let Kissinger basically set up his own foreign policy outfit that yeah. bypassed, in Nixon's words, the striped pants faggots at Foggy, Foggy Bottom. <laughs> so and like it's hard to it's hard to like this is monumentally important here because basically he cut out the defense, not just the State Department, but the defense and military establishment from foreign policy and created all these like back channels to run it out of the White House, not the State Department, the DOD, Langley, and everything that that entails. So what did they do? Well, they began to set up their own back channels and shadow governments within Nixon's own White House as he was doing that to, to them, right? Yeah. Uh, the, yeah, the, 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 the Secretaries of Defense and State basically had nothing to do during the entirety of the, uh, of the Nixon uh, administration they were like playing fucking pinochle with each other the whole time because they were it was just him and kissinger in a room which is not how it's supposed to work like <laughs> these the like guy the presidency is only uh imbued with the power it is with the expectation that that power is going to be you know uh uh deliberated and delegated out through the network of people who can be trusted and who are part of us of, of these existing structures uh, Nixon just deciding to do it himself uh, was in incredibly alarming. So, and then there was there was a, a second snub of H.W. Bush that Nixon did um, in 1968. Uh, Poppy tried to run for the Senate again in Texas, but he was defeated when uh, the conservative Democrat Lloyd Benson got in the race and on the Democratic side ran and then defeated. He he lost to him, but. Um, so he, after losing that Senate bid, he he asked Nixon if he could be undersecretary of the Treasury. It's strange that he would ask for that job rather than full on secretary. But keep in mind, as Baker points out, the undersecretary of the Treasury Department was the job that specifically dealt with the oil industry. And once again, that oil depletion allowance. Um, but Nixon dissed him again 
and appointed somebody else. And Bush was once again, H.W. was livid about this. What did all this loyalty to Nixon really get him if he can't even be under Secretary of the Treasury? And he also basically suspected, and rightly so, that Nixon uh, supported Lloyd Benson and was basically forming his own alliance with uh, sort of very conservative Southern Democrats like Benson and Senator Eastland and guys like that to be like a, a block of support for Nixon and his policies that would be outside the realm of the gang, the cabal, the Bushes, and, and the oil industry and the Eastern elites. So this brings us to like these are all the these are all the threads that are coalescing, which bring us to the the Watergate burglary itself. Now, basically, in Baker's book, he he advances a narrative that suggests that basically everything about the popular understanding of Watergate and Nixon's role in it is wrong. So let's examine that itself. So let's let's begin with the break-in itself. Um, on June 17, 1972, a group of burglars carrying electronic surveillance equipment was arrested inside the Democratic National Committee offices um, at the Watergate building complex. The men were quickly identified as having ties to the Nixon re-election campaign and the White House. Baker writes here, Almost no one has better expressed reasons to doubt Nixon's involvement than Nixon himself. In his memoir, Nixon described how he learned about the burglary while vacationing in Florida from the morning newspaper. He recalled his reaction at the time. It sounded preposterous. This is, this is Nixon writing. Cubans in surgical gloves bugging the DNC. I dismissed it as some sort of prank. The whole thing made so little sense. Why, I wondered. Why then? Why in such a blundering way? Anyone who knew anything about politics would know that the National Committee headquarters was a useless place to go for inside information on the presidential campaign. The whole thing looked so senseless and bungled that it almost looked like it was some kind of setup. Now, and just from the very beginning, Nixon suspected that not only was this a setup, but this was a setup of him. And then uh, we, we have another from like the Nixon tapes we have um, on, on the 23rd, which is very, very shortly thereafter the burglary. And on June 23rd, uh, Alderman says to Nixon that he's been co you know, sort of coordinating with the FBI agents working on this case. And in his opinion, the whole thing, in the opinion of the FBI that he was talking to, the whole thing smelled of the CIA. That this was like they, they, they had basically stumbled upon unwittingly an ongoing CIA operation. To which Nixon, when told of this, says, of course, this is, this is a E. Howard Hunt operation. And the exposure of it will uncover a lot of things. You open that scab, there's a hell of a lot of things that we just feel that it would be very detrimental to have this go any further. This involves the Cubans, Hunt, and a lot of hanky-panky that we have nothing to do with ourselves. This will open the whole Bay of Pigs thing. And it's that phrase, the Bay of Pigs thing, that comes up again and again and again in Nixon's own recordings of himself and in the literature on this. What did, to Nixon, the Bay of Pigs thing really represent? So Nixon felt immediately like he was being set up. And again, there are many good reasons why Nixon would be advancing a case that sought to exonerate himself about this. Like, you have to take this into account when considering, you know, various competing versions of these events. But basically, the burglary itself seemed intentionally amateurish, even though it was carried out by absolute pros. And from his first day in office, like Nixon knew that many of his supporters or the people who had put him in the White House were unhappy with him, particularly the right wing. 
And as I mentioned, these, this all concerns his attempts to thaw out the Cold War, using Kissinger to bypass the, the, the military, the defense establishment, the State Department. And basically, like his attempts to secure agreements to the Soviet Union and China without the consent of the military and the oil men who thought he wasn't delivering enough for them on as it related to the depletion allowance or import quotas. So when Nixon says the Howard Hunt thing and talked about opening that scab, he meant the Bay of Pigs and the CIA. So one of the, one of the, like, the smoking guns um, that indicted Nixon in the public imagination and in Congress was like the, the smoking gun tape on June 23rd. And it was a conversation between Haldeman and Nixon where Haldeman says... The way to handle this now is for us to have CIA director, deputy director Vernon Walters call the FBI interim director, Pat Gray, and just say, stay the hell out of this. This is a business here that we don't want you to go any further on. Nixon says, "Mm mm-hmm. And an excerpt like that is damning, but in almost every account of the smoking gun tape, they don't go, they don't play what happened immediately after that tape. And that was basically Alderman and Nixon saying that they had stumbled inadvertently into an ongoing open CIA operation. Like what, what seems like they're indicting themselves is actually they are they're flabbergasted that they are going to have to take the blame for something that is being done to them rather than on their orders by the CIA. And this is crucial because it's like it's not like Nixon was like a critic of the CIA in the sense that you or I would be like he had his own reasons for this and he was in collusion with all the same people. But the thing is, he knew them. He was their creature. And he had his own motivations is like his own power to consider. And he was terrified of that Bay of Pigs things and what it really represented. And, and another fictional account of Nixon's presidency is Oliver Stone's Nixon. And in Stone's portray, portrayal of it, similar to like the Robert Altman Gang of 100 thing, Nixon talks again and again about the Bay of Pigs thing. And he refers to it as the beast. This 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 nexus of like sh- like shadow government and power that was not that was that was created of course to assassinate Castro and to like overthrow the Cuban Revolution but took on a life of its own that 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 was that was something much much darker than just a like a a covert warfare against Cuba it represented something much bigger in Nixon's mind than just a a failed invasion of Cuba. Now, on June twenty third, nineteen seventy two. This is the same day Nixon instructed Haldeman to tell the CIA director, Richard Helms, to rein in the FBI's Watergate investigation. Haldeman, in his own uh, recollection of events, says this. In his meeting with Helms, he says, I played Nixon's trump card. The president asked me to tell you this entire affair may be connected to the Bay of Pigs, and if it opens up, the Bay of Pigs might be blown turmoil in the room, Helms gripping the arms of his chair, leaning forward and shouting, the Bay of Pigs had nothing to do with this. I have no concern about the Bay of Pigs. I was absolutely shocked by Helms' violent reaction. Again, I wondered what was such dynamite in the Bay of Pigs story. And, you know, Nixon, throughout, like, again, throughout his entire presidency, was totally paranoid that the CIA had infiltrated his 
cabinet, like his White House. And, you know, I think there are probably good reasons for him to believe that. Uh, Baker writes here that, in all likelihood, the practice of filling the White House with intelligence operatives was not limited to the Nixon administration, but was an ongoing effort. To the intelligence community, the White House was no different than other civil institutions it actively penetrated. In Baker's book, there's a long digression about how Nixon himself also ended up in Dallas on November 22nd, 1963. He was there to speak at Pepsi Cola's corporate meeting and convention. And there's a lot of like spook and agency connections as it relates to the cola industry and of course, Cuban sugar. But I got to skip it all here. And I just need to note simply that LBJ, Nixon, and George H.W. Bush, three future presidents, were all in Dallas on that day. And then of course, Gerald Ford was appointed to the Warren Commission three days later. So that's four future American presidents presidents who all get a close-up look at one serving president getting his head blown off, all with varying degrees of incrimination in that murder and the people involved in it. So like, j- just think about what that actually represents. That they like, For some reason, they, like, like those, all those future American presidents were like, had a front row seat to see Kennedy get his fucking head blown off in Dallas. Do you think that that might have led to Nixon's paranoia about the CIA and the the Bay of Pigs thing, considering who was involved in the Bay of Pigs. Yeah, it's highly likely. Uh, I mean, it, it, you don't even have to take his word for it about Watergate. The guys were fucking CIA operatives. They were all they were Bay of Pigs veterans. Uh, and speaking of the incompetence of the Watergate uh, burglary, the thing that always gets me is that the whole reason it got blown is because a security guard passed by a door that had a piece of tape over the lock, which is a classic way that you, you know, keep a door open. But the way you do it, if you don't want to get caught is you do it, uh, so that the tape uh, lies along the, uh, angle of the door, uh, vertically. So you don't see it from the side, but it was taped horizontally. So you could see it poking out on either side of the door. And the first thing that the security guard did because he was probably getting paid minimum wage was just take it off and w- walk away. But then he came back and someone had put it back exactly in the same spot, which I don't know how the hell you keep your job for five minutes if you keep doing that. And here's the thing, like the guys who did it, the guys who did the Watergate burglary, like and back to the, like, the, the actual event itself, like Matt brings up the, the obvious question and Nixon himself was wondering about this. Why all the obvious fuck ups in a job that's being carried out by agency pros? These guys like Howard Hunt and G. Gordon Liddy and like the Cubans they were working with were not just they were veterans of the Bay of Pigs operation, but like it, many of them individually would go on to do Phoenix program shit in Vietnam. These people were professional killers who had done this very thing many times before, but then did the Watergate burglary in such a way that not only was the, like, the break-in discovered by a fucking minimum wage security guard, but that immediately there was an abundance of evidence linking the men involved, not just to the White House and the Committee to Re-elect the President, but the CIA, and not just the CIA, but parts of the agency who were behind the Bay of Pigs. And guess who else was in Dallas on that day in 1963? That's right, Howard Hunt, which was confirmed as such by CIA all-star James Jesus Angleton in 1978. Now, at the time of the Watergate breakdown, keep in mind that the guys like Hunt and McCord were, of course, resigned from the CIA. I mean, and if you believe that, go back and listen to part one about the way the agency uses resignations before putting guys into like active black ops situations. Yeah, no, the one thing about the CIA... It's like the mafia. 
you always leave when you say you leave. Very easy to get out of. Now, Hunt was working for the White House, but this is another interesting detail. While he was in the White House, Hunt went to outlandish, took outlandish efforts to broadcast to like anyone who was paying attention that he was continued to be involved with the CIA. He ordered government limousines to drive him from the White House to Langley, signaling to everyone that the Nixon White House was closely tied to the CIA at the exact moment that they were actually feuding with it. And and Nixon was feuding with the, the CIA over the declassification of everything that they had related to the Bay of Pigs invasion. Nixon, as soon as he got in the White House, he, he, he wanted to know what was going on with the Bay of Pigs thing because he correctly understood it as a direct threat to his power as president and like a demonstration of just what this secret government can do to you if you step out of line. He, like, so like he was being blackballed at the, by the CIA about their documents at the very same time that this burglary is carried out by the very same people who did the Bay of Pigs. Interesting. Interesting, to say the least. Yeah, and the thing is, is that people resist that because you, if you say that Nixon was kind of framed in this thing, it kind of implies that Nixon was some sort of, was innocent in some broad sense. But when you're dealing with people at this level of power, innocent is not a thing. Like, there, he did create the plumbers. He did authorize all kinds of wild anti-democratic shit, wiretapping and breaking and entering like Daniel Ellsberg's uh, psychiatrist's office, things like that. But uh, that really just provides the perfect context to fuck with him. To, 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 you don't have to necessarily execute a guy who's that reckless and that willing to expose himself if you know what he's doing. And now you, you, bring up, you bring it up, you bring up the Ellsberg office thing, but like these same people before the Watergate burglary that got discovered like weeks prior to that, that that wasn't even the first time they they broke into the the Watergate. They the first time they did it, they did it to plant um, listening devices in the DNC offices, and they were you know strangely uh, not discovered during that break in. And the second Watergate break in was ostensibly to remove those same listening devices. And they had done a similar thing in 1971. You mentioned the break in at Daniel Ellsberg's psychiatrist's office, which is another strange job for these people, as there were no actual medical records or like patient notes in the office and they made no attempt to even find them or hide that a break-in had occurred um but a criminal report was nonetheless generated and even though the break-in was not ordered by nixon it was already connected to him before he was even aware of it and what it was revealed was of course deeply damaging to his public standard standing and establishes a kind of pattern of these these fucked up botched break-ins done by fucking contract killers for the cia who seemingly make every effort to be discovered and announce to everyone that they had done a break-in on behalf of Richard Nixon. I think here is the point in the story where we need to discuss the role of Bob Woodward in all of this. And this is another this is another guy who like the public understanding of the name Bob Woodward is synonymous with good heroic journalist. And Woodward's life and connection to all of this raises some very interesting questions that cut against that narrative. I'm just going to read here from Baker. Uh, Woodward did not fit the profile of the typical daily print reporter. 
young Midwestern Republican. He attended Yale on an ROTC scholarship and then spent five years in the Navy. He had begun with a top secret security clearance on board the USS Wright, specializing in communications, including with the White House. His commanding officer was Rear Admiral, Rear Admiral Robert O. Wellander, who would later be implicated in the military spy ring in the Nixon White House. This is, I, I can't get into all this before, but the military was already attempting to fucking spy on the Nixon White House precisely because they were being cut out. These are the, the back channels I was talking about. But anyway, so Woodward had arrived in Washington where he worked on the staff of Admiral Thomas Moore, Chief of Naval Operations, and again as a communications officer, this one who provided briefings and documents to top brass in the White House on national security matters. And according to this account, in 1969 through 1970, Woodward frequently walked through the basement offices of the White House West Wing with documents from Admiral Moore to General Alexander Haig, who served under Henry Kissinger. So once again, it's weird that like, like the most crusading journalist in American history started out his career as a military communications officer who worked with the White House on like sensitive intelligence briefings. In September 1971, after one year of training at the Maryland-based Sentinel, Woodward was hired at the Washington Post. And then this is according to uh, Harry Rosenfeld, who was a retired Post editor, who said this to a newspaper in 2004. Bob had come to us on very high recommendations from someone in the White House. He had been an intelligence officer in the Navy and had served in the Pentagon. He had not been exposed to any newspaper. We gave him a tryout because he was so highly recommended. We customarily didn't do that. Is, 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 that a strange, <laughs> is that a strange CV for like a crusading journalist to be hired by a newspaper with one year under his belt at like a fucking like a, a coupon cutout in Maryland to get, to get hired yeah, by the Washington Post? You should have seen Post? his leads. They were flawless. He had all the W's and the H in there every single time. Yeah, I would have hired him for sure. He, he broke the Piggly Wiggly price-fixing regime. I should note about the Washington Post, of course, is long been have steeped in these same intelligence connections and through the Graham family who were a fucking an absolute collection of monsters and also Ben Bradley the other heroic figure from this Watergate story was himself a former naval intelligence operator who had many close friends in the CIA including the former director Richard Helms who was director of the CIA at the time that this was going on so I mean again yeah like, the 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 Washington Post is basically like the internal bulletin board for the CIA. It's, I mean, to this day, like Fred Hyatt's opinion page, they've run the most op-eds by Mohammed bin Salman out of anyone. <laughs> like It is just the most open justifications for the Saudi war in Yemen were in the Washington Post op-ed section. It is just an intelligence community rag. I mean, that's really why Jeff Bezos bought it. Yeah, well, that's also why he's moved into the, they moved to D.C. after all that bullshit. Like, of course they were going to go to D.C. They're just f continuing the fucking merger with the fucking government. Mm -hmm. Now, Woodward, one of his first big scoops came as it relates to the assassination attempt on George Wallace. And he was he, he broke a lot of news in that story because for a guy who just came into journalism a year ago, guess what? He had a lot of connections and sources in the intelligence community who fed him a lot of stuff on that story, which gave him sort of like headline-breaking ability. And I want to mention, too, like Woodward's career after Watergate, um, these same connections, right, he used to, base, to generate a 
series of these like access based books that were like, they all became bestsellers. And like, you remember those during the Bush administration, the W. Bush administration? He wrote a trilogy of books, the first two of which were used to absolutely bolster George Bush's credibility during the war on terror and the war in Iraq. And then he used the last one to turn it back and, you know, say like, oh, like it's a portrait of the White House who was losing a war and dishonest to the American public. But like people forget that the first two books in that Woodward trilogy about George W. Bush, George H.W.'s fucking son, were hugely not not just soft on the Bush administration, but directly fed to the public under the, you know, under his name as someone synonymous with good journalism, their line about the war on terror and the lead up to the Iraq war. And then another book, there is a book called The Veil that Bob, Bob Woodward wrote, The Secret Wars of the CIA, 1981 to 87. This is a book that Woodward claimed was based on a deathbed interview, which he didn't record with CIA director William Casey. Uh, it's 534 pages, and it came out exactly when Poppy Bush was running for the White House, but contained no substantive mentions of any role on, behalf, on the part of Bush in the secret wars that he was talking about, even though Bush was vice president and the former CIA director while these CIA, while these fucking the, the dirty wars in South America and Central America were going on. So he put he puts out this book based on a phony, perhaps phony deathbed conversion of William Casey admitting to all of this shit, but somehow exonerates George H.W. Bush for his role in all of it, despite the fact that he was there at every crucial juncture of these dirty wars that were going on. And then, like I said, and then, then he goes on and does the same thing with George W. Bush. And like you begin to have to wonder, but what Bob Woodward's role as like a journalist in American culture and like society and the extent to which he's, his work is praised and held up as a standard for journalistic truth, like what's really going on with that? I mean, that's what at the highest level, that's what journalists uh, really do. I mean, the, the fantasy of Watergate of this guy getting this this source even there. Even in the even in the uh, the narrative that made it to the silver screen and all the president's men, wh- what is the thing that uh, that breaks the story? It is a fucking spook coming forward, and then the the assumption that we all have to make is that they're doing this on behalf of truth, not on behalf of either stitching someone up in the case of uh, of Nixon perhaps or limiting a hangout, and that if you are as as all me- journalists are at that level, sort of beholden to your sources, then you will never learn what they don't want you to know. And then your real job is convincing the public that what they tell you is actually the truth and not a edited version of the truth that is to their advantage for you to know. So returning to to Poppy, where, like where where was he at during all of this? And like like I said, like it, it, all you need to know is that like Woodward was right there at the Washington Post night desk the night of the break in and was crucial in tying the burglary to Nick Richard Dixon personally. So at the same time, uh, you'll, you'll remember that, that Poppy was turned down for undersecretary of the Treasury, but he was, he was given um, the position of ambassador to the UN. And then from there, he had moved on after Nixon's reelection to chairman of the Republican Party. He was made head of the RNC. So this is a man with close ties to the CIA, who was now in charge of the Republican National Committee and which had been and sitting in on cabinet meetings in the White House. Like for 
an intelligence industry, intelligence agency cut out, you could not be more perfectly positioned to have a front row seat to the Nixon White House and to potentially undermine it on behalf of your true agenda. So when the Watergate hearings opened and like all this has been coming out, um, George H.W. Bush met with Nixon, who regarded Bush. I mean, like when he was reelected, he, he cleaned house in his White House and purged like all the people he did thought was disloyal to him. The one guy he kept on, strangely enough, was George H.W. Bush, who he regarded as a loyal soldier because he was like, well, yeah, I've, I've pissed on him like numerous times before. I've snubbed him and he's played the good soldier. So like what's not credible about that? No way he's harboring any kind of weird grudge or, or harboring some kind of hatred of me or attempting to undermine me. He's stuck with me throughout all of this. So Bush sticks around. And then in his second term, when like Watergate was steadily becoming a bigger and bigger thing, and it was clear that it would be basically defined all of his second term if they were ever able to, like, they thought they could get out from under it, but it was clear that they were basically hemmed in on all sides here. So it was a meeting between George H.W. Bush and Nixon, where Bush encouraged him to send John Dean to testify to, con to Congress. And immediately after Bush asked Nixon to send Dean to testify, uh, Dean calls Nixon for an urgent meeting in which he tells Nixon that, guess what? There's all this shit about the Watergate break-in that uh, you weren't aware of that I knew about and didn't tell you. And hmm. he was like, including the, the break-in at Ellsberg's office. So it was sort of like, okay, like just, just filling you in on like, basically we were saying that like, Nixon wanted Dean to go and he wanted him to come clean from what from 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 Nixon's perspective. He wanted to like say, look, we have nothing to hide. Just let's open the books, even though that goes against my normal inclination to share information or or, you know, cooperate with Congress and anything. And like his sense of indignation about having to be dragged through all this. He wanted Dean to basically, you know, make it clear, come clean, testify that there was no White House involvement. Like Alderman, Coulson, Ehrlichman, none of those guys were involved or ordered this shit to happen. And what did Dean do? The exact opposite. He essentially jumped ship and became the star witness for the prosecution. And before he did so, Dean warned him against this, saying that basically not too fast on this come clean about everything. There's a lot of loose ends and things that you don't know about. So, I mean, like, there, there's a lot of stuff that I don't have time to get into here about, like, a lot of these peripheral figures to Watergate, like uh, Butterfield, uh, Lowell Weicker, and the prosecutor Leon Jarowski, that, like, if you're interested in sussing out all of their connections to H.W. Bush and the CIA, uh, just read Family of Secrets. But there's, there's too much to get into here. Um, but basically... One of the big issues was um, something called the Townhouse Fund, which was like a proto-Watergate that like happened before these events that also tied Nixon to like shady financial dealings. And that the lead prosecutor uh, uh, that was appointed by Congress, Leon Jarowski, George W. H. W. Bush called him at a crucial moment and told him that it had been determined that uh, both H.W. Bush and Jarowski himself were recipients of funds that came out of this townhouse scandal so that they were both implicated in it. And no one followed that money. Like the follow the money is like the is is the catchphrase about Watergate. And there was all of these like sources of money relating that went into Watergate as it related to George W. Bush and a lot of like Texas oil money that was never followed up on. And in 1974, as efforts to remove him from office game steam, uh, Nixon's Justice Department was, in fact, also looking into antitrust violations among these exact same oil men as it related to uh, the 
their monopolistic practices. And this is happening at the exact same time. So basically, everyone around Nixon, like John Dean, John Dean's lawyers, uh, Jaworski, all these people worked in in various ways and to like in depending on how you read this with varying degrees of collusion to undermine Nixon in the public eye and to and to basically uh sell him out to just you know just point to him it was him he was the guy who did it he he ordered all he ordered the all the Watergate thing just basically like as as Nixon as the Nixon White House came crashing down George H.W. Bush was a guy was like the only guy who managed to maintain complete disconnection from all of the dirty shit that had now become synonymous with the Nixon administration. He would, he got away scot-free in the media and in Congress and every way. He he emerged from it totally unscathed, which is odd. In fact, he got uh, a reputation. I remember reading uh, uh, What It Takes, which is this gigantic book about the 1988 presidential campaign that has sections on all the uh, all the people who ran. And uh, the, the takeaway, the narrative around... Uh, Poppy was that he had been selfless during this period, that he had that he had been chairman of the RNC at a time when people were very suspicious of it. And then later he became chairman, uh, head of the CIA at a time when it, people were very suspicious of it. And that his choice to do that was essentially self-sacrificing. So after Nixon leaves office, once again, Poppy is pushed hard to be Gerald Ford's VP. And Ford ultimately does pass on HW, but he does. But he did make him envoy to china now again he had no experience with china but keep in mind that this is this is happening exactly like at the exact same time that nixon and kissinger had just opened up china and like i said had begun a process of as the saying goes only nixon can go to china what that really means is only nixon could have the ardent anti-communist that he was only he would have been allowed to basically begin to wrap up and end the cold war and reach like a, a diplomatic you know treat Soviet, the Soviet Union and communist China as nations that should be negotiated with just like any other. And then all of a sudden, H.W. Bush becomes the special envoy to China under the Ford administration. And, you know, of course, then immediately Ford pardons Richard Nixon. But the important thing about that is that the pardon of Nixon for the crimes related to Watergate, the fact that he was pardoned for it forever tied him to those crimes. And crucially, ended all investigations into who exactly was involved. And then George H.W. Bush was, of course, sent away to China, as far away from the scene of the crime as you could get. And like, like I said, like this all paints a portrait of Watergate and Nixon's resolution as a, co- as a, a covert operation to um, set up Nixon, make sure that he was like, you know, framed for it, guilty of it, and to remove any of their fingerprints from what happened. Again, like it's you. You can like th- this is this is a narrative. I mean, like there, you, I'm sure there are ways you could you could argue against it, but I, I I do think it's an interesting one and one, like you know that that basically Nixon was the victim of Watergate rather than its perpetrator. And what was really going on here was not, you know, Nixon as like a evil conniving guy, though he was. It was him being removed from power for bucking like the, his backers, his sponsors, the people who owned him. And if you consider how Kennedy's presidency ended up and the things that he did to anger these very same people, I mean, it was another basically, and a lot of like Nixon's right-wing toadies have gone on to describe it as a coup and like they have very self-interested reasons for doing so, but they may not be entirely wrong. Yeah, but they yes, wrong for the right reasons. That's pretty much the only way anybody in any of these like partisan boxes can ever uh, be correct. So now it's it's 1974, and 
1974, thanks to the efforts of Seymour Hersh, the American public had finally become aware of what was known as the CIA family jewels. This included all of the information and documentation about their assassinations, spying on American journalists, experiments on human guinea pigs, run down the fucking list. So there was like an increased interest, not just in the CIA and their role in assassinations, but there being an interest in the Kennedy assassination as well. And there was a great deal of public outcry about this at the time. And in response to it, Gerald Ford created something called the Rockefeller Commission, which released one report in 1975, which was a pure limited hangout that talked basically like cop to the CIA's mail opening and their spying on domestic political groups. But it also concluded that there was, quote, no credible evidence of CIA's involvement in the JFK assassination. However, before the Rockefeller Commission could release its report, they were immediately undercut by the Church Committee, which is a dueling, competing congressional like uh, hearing or like, like investigation that was launched by Senate Democrats, which absolutely blew away the Rockefeller Commission's whitewash of these things. Uh, quoting here, it says, the church committee documented a mind-boggling array of domestic dirty tricks. The CIA and FBI would send anonymous letters designed to induce employers to fire politically suspect workers. Similar letters were sent to spouses in an effort to destroy marriages. The committee also documented criminal break-ins and disinformation campaigns aimed at provoking violent attacks against selected individuals, including Martin Luther King Jr. The FBI also mailed King a tape recording taken from microphones hidden in his hotel rooms, accompanied by a note warning that the recording, with its evidence of marital indiscretions, would be released to the public unless King committed suicide. So because of the church committee, Ford had to issue an executive order banning U.S. sanctioned assassinations of foreign leaders. And, you know, if you were aware of any of this at the time, the echo to the Kennedy assassination could not be unmistaken in, in this effort to finally say that, like, okay, according to, like, by executive fiat, the U.S. intelligence community can no longer assassinate the leaders of foreign countries. But, you know, unspoken in there is, like, what about leaders of our own country, right? Hmm. So... Frank Church, who was uh, the Idaho Democratic senator, um, it, you know, beginning in January of 1975, just unearthed one scandal after another about the CIA, the FBI, and the National Security Agency. Uh, you know, run down the list here. And it was like, you know, shocking for the public. And there was like a huge amount of pressure being placed on politicians to rein in the intelligence community and crucially to reopen an investigation into the Kennedy assassination. In March 1975, the American public saw the Zapruder film for the first time ever. And this was, of course, after Henry Luce bought the film for the express purpose of making sure no one ever saw it. On November 1st of that year, George H.W. Bush is in Beijing with Barbara, and he gets a telegram from Kissinger that Ford is about to name him CIA director. Now, the timing of this is crucial. Like, It's really hard to overstate just how damaging the church committee's efforts were to the intelligence community and just how scared for probably the first time ever they were of any kind of public revelation or accountability for basically running a secret government and they committed heinous crimes. Like I said, like even in the church committee, what they were able to pry out of them was, I guarantee you, only a fraction of the atrocities that they got up to it, it, but prior to that era. So all of a sudden, they're bringing back H.W. Bush from China and making him director of the CIA. And, and of course, when he was nominated, he was praised as being an outsider. 
who was praised because, oh, he has no, he's never worked in the intelligence community. So, like, we're going to bring in a guy to clean house, some guy outside of, their, of, that, of that sphere and social world. But, you know, as we've outlined on these, both of these episodes frequently, that is complete horseshit. They could not have picked a guy who was more of an insider at this very crucial moment when the CIA, for like the first time in its existence, was under unprecedented pressure to be reformed or to be shut down even. That was a real, like people forget, like that was a real political issue at the time. Like they, they got very close to like through, through Congress of like openly asking the question, should we have a CIA given what we know about them and like the, the revelations as it pertains to their behavior in undermining not just foreign governments and democracy, but their actions right here at home, which explicitly go against the, their charter, which says that they can only operate outside the United States. So at that exact moment, George H.W. Bush is made or nominated to be director of the CIA to replace William Colby, who was the guy who released these family jewels in an effort, it, that, a limited hangout effort, that, which even for them was still too forthcoming for the people in power. And the, it was followed by what was called the Halloween Massacre, which uh, in the Ford administration, which sort of battened down the hatches on everyone in intelligence who was considered disloyal. The two guys in charge of the Halloween Massacre, Dick Cheney and Donald Rumsfeld. Wop. To get confirmed by the Senate, um, George, George H.W. Bush had to sort of, he had to run a gauntlet. And there's an interesting piece uh, by James Risen in The Intercept not too long ago that talks about how uh, basically there was a, an assassination of a CIA officer in Greece at the time. And then they used that, that assassination and like that dead guy as like a way to get him confirmed. And they were sort of waving the bloody flag to be like, our, our patriotic overseas CIA officers are being murdered and like at the same time that the church committee is attacking them and the work they do, and that they, he may have even been killed because of the church committee. And they began blaming this good death of this guy. Uh, his name was uh, Richard Welch. He was the CIA station chief in Greece, and he was uh, assassinated in Athens in 1975. And the CIA, of course, immediately began blaming his death on the, on the church committee in a sensational and hysterical way. That, you know, that, oh, like these investigations led to this death. And it was that climate that basically helped Bush get confirmed by the Senate. On January 27, 1976, Senator Strom Thurmond argued for his confirmation by claiming to, that the public was more concerned by disclosures that are tearing down the CIA than by the selection of this highly competent man to repair the damage of this overexposure. But People forget George H.W. Bush only lasted one year as CIA director. He was only there for one year before Ford lost Carter, and he tried to get Carter to keep him on as CIA director, but I guess even Jimmy Carter was smart enough to know that they need to get this, get this guy the fuck out of there. One of the only smart moves Carter made. Yeah, 100%. But in that year that he was... I mean, like I said, like it's the timing of it that's so important because he was he was made director at a very, very vulnerable time for the CIA. And what did he do during the one year he was director of the CIA? Well, he announced a major reorganization that increased both the agency's authority to conduct controversial operations and the director's authority over the larger intelligence community. So like he was there and then like along with, guess what, Rumsfeld, Cheney and Wolfowitz and others who did the Halloween massacre, he began ways uh, of finding ways to get around analysts who did not sufficiently hype the threat from the Soviet Union. What was that effort? 
it was, of course, known as Team A and Team B in the Pentagon. And that Team A, Team B guy, look that up. It is everyone who was like the neocons who started the war in Iraq. And like the whole, their whole, the, the, their whole reason for being was to create non-existent, a non-existent threat by the Soviet Union to uh, abrogate any effort to cut military spending or to rein in the intelligence community. Because they would always come up with like, well, uh, the CIA or the State Department says that there is absolutely no evidence we can find that the Soviet Union is currently developing a doomsday device. And Team B would look at the same evidence and create this like stovepipe of intelligence exactly like they did in the, the George W. Bush administration to say, well, the fact that there is no evidence for the Russian doomsday device is proof positive that Russia is developing a doomsday device because we understand the Russian mind in a way that these people don't. It, sh- it should be noted that not a single one of these people spoke Russian or ever lived in Russia, even once. So he was right there, and Brent Snowcroft was right there. It was, like, it was this very... like brief period in the Ford administration, a guy who was like not even elected president, in, in which the intelligence community and George H.W. Bush managed to completely reassert control over like the CIA and all of their covert operations at a time when it was most vulnerable. And then right before Reagan got in there and gave them free reign to do whatever the fuck they wanted. But also we saw here like this is the beginning of the careers of guys like Cheney, Rumsfeld, Snowcroft, Snowcroft and everyone who would be in George H.W. Bush's presidential administration and then eventually his sons. And there's one other uh, big notable thing uh, from his brief tenure there at CIA. While he was the CIA uh, chief, uh, Orlando Lettier and Ronnie Moffat were blown up in DuPont Circle by uh, the Chilean security services as part of operation condor uh and he publicly uh helped cover it up so the involvement that he had there who knows how deep that went and then finally most importantly the one thing he also did in his brief tenure as cia director was put an end to any and all investigations into the jfk assassination and the numerous agency connections to literally everyone involved in it especially old family friend George DeMoran Schult, who we talked about in episode one. This, at this exact moment, journalists began digging around this guy. And what do you know it? In 1977, he blew his head off with a shotgun. Wow, Bill O'Reilly was at front, his front door. <laughs> <laughs> so there we go. Uh, that, that takes us from, HW, from the Watergate burglary and like HW's involvement in the Nixon administration right up to his tenure as CIA director. And I think the important thing here is that like... Narrating this story, like I said, it would seem to suggest that Watergate and everything surrounding it was some sort of operation of which Nixon was a basically a victim of rather than a perpetrator of done on behalf of the CIA. And like I said, the, the various elements that comprise what could fairly be termed as like a shadow government in America who were angry at Nixon for stepping out of line in a couple crucial ways as it regards China slowing out the Cold War and undermining their authority. And that like after that, at a time when for the first time ever, the American public was being made aware of like just how blood curdling the shit these people have been gotten up to over the last couple decades were. And I'm talking about the assassinations of like political figures like DM, Trujillo, Patrice Lumumba. And then it's just like, how easy is it to just throw Kennedy, like the fact that Kennedy was swallowed by this exact same beast like that these political assassinations and coups that were going on overseas being run by these people in secret, is it really so, like how big a leap do you have to make to think that like, oh, they wouldn't do that in America, the country that's most important to them? 
And it was just, it was George H.W. Bush who was at, like I said, just found himself at the nexus of all of these things, the removal of Nixon and then like the reconsolidation of power by the intelligence community at a time at which they were probably never more vulnerable. So, I mean, like, like that, that to me is just like, you know, th that's the important thing about this part of H.W. Bush's life. So that, I think, fairly summarizes it. I mean, that, that's part two of the life and times of the man known as Poppy. And there's a lot of stuff going on there. And if, you're, if you'd like to delve deeper into it, like I said, I've, I borrowed heavily from the work of Russ Baker and his book, Family of Secrets, which is a very interesting read. And it's a book that I mentioned in the first episode is, you know, was, was slammed as being conspiratorial and def defamatory when it came out. But when you read it, it's like Russ Baker is a very dry journalist. I mean, like he really is just kind of, he makes certain speculations, which is sort of like, how could you not when you look at all this information? But it is a fairly dry resuscitation of like the historical record that is largely gone unnoticed for obvious reasons. So in, in part three, I think when we get around to doing that, we will have to talk about his role as Reagan's vice president, his role in the, the secret dirty wars in Central America, crucially his role in the Iran-Contra affair, but also I would like to talk about his in, the insane Bush family connections to the Hinckley family and the guy who shot Ronald Reagan early in his first term. Because, <laughs> I mean, it very well may be that like that was fucking sending a message to another president as well. And like I said, the Hinckley family, John Hinckley Jr. himself was close friends with Neil Bush, and the Hinckley father was very close to George H.W. Bush. And like the Hinckley and Bush family is another very very weird like personal connection that as it relates a presidential attempted assassination and then shit like we may uh, maybe we'll have to do a part four on him actually being president and the uh ghoulish shit he did in the first gulf war and elsewhere during the or or the uh, noriega i mean there, there's there's just so much stuff here there's so much fucking dirt his connections to the saudis and what that like what that meant i mean i it just it goes carlisle group it goes on and Pretty on nice. and on with this guy. It's fucking, it's fucking incredible. Yeah, he's the Zelig of evil. There you go. I mean, yeah, that is the way to think about it. Like, he really is... Yeah, he, he's just sort of in the background at, like, all of these very key moments in American history. And somehow um, it, it is emerges from them despite being very closely tied to all of the shit that's going on. It emerges unscathed and, and then is promoted after each successive, like, disaster. And he like he's just right there at the right place and the right time at all of these nexuses of like, like I said, money, intelligence, politics, oil, all of it. I mean, he, like I said, he, he is just he's a stand in for so much about 20th century America. And that's, I think, the benefit of doing this series. So once again, Poppy Part Two, Poppy Parts, parts Three and Four still to come. But like I said, you, we cannot even approach one episode on any of this shit because it's just there's too much stuff there and i'm gonna have to start compiling all the stuff on iran contra now we may have to just do an episode just on iran contra like a poppy extended cinematic universe because there's hmm. i mean the, the shit there is jaw-dropping as well in terms of who's involved in it daniel ortega as thanos <laughs> so what do you say fellas till next time till yes. next time bye Hello. Ambassador Bush. President, sir. Hello. George. Just called to wish you a happy new year. What a thoughtful thing. And tell you what a great job you've done in 71. Well, my gosh, nothing could make me happier, but I just feel I'll let you down a couple of ways. Oh, not at all, no. We had some tough ones. Well, you, you fought the good fight, and that's the main thing, and you made a fine mark for yourself, and uh, 